Grace, mercy, and the peace of our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be and abide with you this day and every day. Amen. Today we begin a new series, a new message series called Intersection, where faith and life meet the real world, real life, where the rubber meets the road, as they say, where life happens and faith interacts with the real world. We're going to look at the book of James, which Luther called an epistle full of straw. Luther wasn't a big fan, actually, of the book of James, but we're going to look at it anyway. Um, and that's primarily, well, for a couple reasons. One, it doesn't actually talk about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus in direct terms. So Luther said, it's not evangelical. It doesn't share the good news. It's a how-to book. It talks a lot about the things that we do. And if you remember Luther's context, he was in uh, a lot of times dealing with a church system that was too focused on the things that people would do and not focused enough on what Christ had already done. So reading a book like James where it's this is what you do and, you know, a lot of like, well, we're going to see this next week, faith without works is dead. Um, Luther wasn't sure he liked that sentiment because it was the works that people would do that were too much emphasized in the 16th century. So there's this book, James. And we're going to deal with what it says and how it says it because it's very practical. How to live our lives as disciples. So faith is affecting us for eternity, right? But it also affects us in the here and now. And this is what James writes a lot about. This is the intersection where we can learn from our experiences. And some of the best training, some of the best learning happens by facing trials. Facing trials. Have you faced trials in your life? Probably. Because we all have. Suffering, in fact, should not be surprising. Peter writes this in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Trials happen. Suffering happens. We're going to all deal with our share of it because the world is broken. As the result of sin, there's all kinds of problems on this planet that we occupy. And they're all around us. Life is complicated by this fact. There's death and disease and suffering and pain and struggle and war. And, I mean, if you need to see it, just turn on the news tonight. And for 30 minutes to an hour, you'll see all kinds of stories, maybe with that one that's human interest inserted, here's some good news, this is a something you know, awesome that somebody did, right? But most of it is about the problems that plague us, the issues that inhabit this planet. There's COVID still, and Afghanistan, and fires, and hurricane, and the list goes on and on. 
But not just the world is broken, we are broken too. And so as we look into our own lives, into our own hearts, into ourselves, we can see brokenness. We know our own suffering. We know our own pain. We've been the victim of other people's actions. And the result of our own actions has also caused its fair share of problems. We've dealt with relationships that have been hard, complicated, maybe broken. We have health issues that we've suffered through. Financial struggles affect so many. Maybe you're facing a job issue. We've been to the school of hard knocks and we've learned some lessons. When I was a kid, we went to New York City and we saw the musical Annie on Broadway. It was the only Broadway show I ever saw. And um, it was pretty fun, right? And my parents picked it out because it was one that would be, you know, the kids would be interested in. And I was a kid. My sister was, you know, we were kids. So going to see Annie was kind of, you know, that was the appropriate show for us probably to see. There were probably some others on Broadway at the time that would not have been that interesting. But one of the songs in Annie, It's a Hard Knock Life for Us. Remember that one? Now you're humming that probably in your head. If you know it, it's a hard knock life for us. And it's the orphan girls that are singing that, right, in the orphanage because they're scrubbing the floors and doing the work and all the things. But for whom is it not a hard knock life? In the story, Daddy Warbucks comes along, right? And he's loaded. And so when he takes Annie to live with him at his house, this is like the answer to all of her problems. But is it? I mean, it's very simplistic to think Daddy Warbucks has it made and little orphan Annie, she's got all the problems, but Daddy Warbucks got his fair share of problems too. We all have had struggles. We've all have had suffering. Our issues are not identical, but we've all struggled. No one has had completely free of any trial kind of life. You know your own pain, your own temptation, your own sensitivity, your own threshold. There was a young man named Isaac in England in the 1800s who had a hard life when he was young. He was kind of sickly, he was small. Other kids would run and play and laugh, and he couldn't keep up. He couldn't participate in the things that they did. And so he would sit depressed Why can't I be like them, envious of the other kids? As he grew up, he became a minister, but he was even too frail to keep up with the the needs of the job. And depressed again, he said, why can't I be like others? Like other people, they have their health and I don't. And he was disappointed and discouraged until someone helped him see that his life had its unique purpose, that no one else was equipped or called to do what he was equipped and called to do, that it mattered how he lived his life. And that led to a 180-degree change in his heart and in his attitude. That Isaac happens to be Isaac Watts, who wrote the hymn, Joy to the World, And our God, our help in ages past. 
that he discovered a joy even in a hard life that we have sung about every Christmas season for as long as I can remember. (laughs) And maybe that's the same for you. He found a joy. James chapter 1 verse 2 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Wait, what? Really? Okay, James. Maybe that's easy for James to write. You know, this is like, this is the brother of Jesus, right? He had an easy life, didn't he? Nope. (laughs) He didn't. None of them did. I mean, first century followers of Jesus had it really hard. Persecution happened. And struggles in life were abundant in that time, too. So what sounds more like a pie-in-the-sky idea than practical, count it all joy when you face trials. Well, James isn't done. (laughs) We have to include in the context what he says in verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We don't count it joy just to suffer because we're suffering, right? When we face a trial or a burden or a difficulty, we don't think, oh, yay, fantastic, I've broken a toe. This is great, I got laid off today. My bank account's empty, yeah, I'm so glad. That's not what we're counting as joy. It's the steadfastness of faith that it produces. This is what James means. Life is the laboratory. See? Life is the laboratory. Testing produces results. So we can talk about faith. We can learn about God. We can do all of the academic work to know things. But until we get in the lab, it's not proven, in other words. When I worked as an engineer, there were things that we would design. We would you know, get around a conference table, we'd talk about what we want to make, and, and we would lay out the, you know, this is what it's going to look like mechanically, and, and the, here's what it's, the appearance of it, and this is what it's supposed to do, right? And all of that could look fantastic on paper. And then we would go straight from there to the factory floor and say, build this, right? No. Because <laughs> before you can do that, you have to do the testing. Does it work like you think it's going to work? Will it last? Right? That's a big test that has to be done. For example, design a car, right? I remember as a kid, you know, like just sketching cars. They would just be the coolest designs, you know? Like super aerodynamic and, and, you know, these big tires and wheels. And I didn't know anything about what went on the inside, so I didn't design any of that stuff. But I couldn't take that to Detroit and say, can you build this for me? Because that was not a design. That would not have functioned. It would need a whole lot more design and then testing in order to prove that it would work. Probably none of my designs would have worked because there would have been no interior space at all. I was a kid. Faith has to be tested. Luther had a a way of phrasing this idea. He said that the best teacher, or the way that, that 
one's theology develops is through, in Latin, oratio, meditatio, and tentatio, which mean prayer, meditation, and temptation. If we contrast that with the, the life of a monk which Luther had lived, that emphasized oratio, meditatio, prayer, and meditation for the purpose of contemplation. The life of the monk was to pray and meditate and think about, right? But where did they live? In these walled-off places where the real world was kept outside the gate. We live outside the gate where the tentatio is going to happen. And Luther said this, the devil is the best teacher of theology. Not because the devil has all the great theology, though the devil understands God probably better than we do. He's got more experience. But the devil teaches us theology through the trials that we face, through the struggles that we have, because life is the laboratory, and when we get in the lab, we can test things, understand things. We reach this intersection of turn right, turn left, and then we get results. When the trial happens, we have choices. Right? Some of our choices don't yield good results. We can choose to turn away from our faith, turn toward bitterness and anger and frustration, turn away from what the Word of God teaches us, follow those paths, veer off course, and we don't get the results that James is telling us to be grateful for. Or we turn toward God, understand through faith that everyone suffers, and we can then grow through these trials. Or as James 1.4 says it, be made perfect. The whole verse says this, Let steadfastness have, have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's not the same as turn your trials into smiles or turn your scars into stars or when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. All those are, I guess, fun to post on social media or something. I don't know. But this is, this is what God does here. This is his work. We're passive in this. By faith, we are perfected. By God's work, we're made perfect. Not through what we do during the trial, but how God shapes us and molds us even through times of testing. We are refined through trial, through testing, so that we can remain steadfast. Jumping to the end of our reading from James, in verse 12 it says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, who faces the trial and responds by turning to the Lord, responds by being faithful, by staying in communion with God, because we're going to be there. We're going to face these trials. We're going to go through hard, difficult times. And in that time, ask God for what you need. In verses 5 and 6, James wrote this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let 
him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James only wrote about wisdom, but I think there's all kinds of things that we could insert into there. If any of you lacks patience, let him ask God. If any of you lacks endurance, strength, faith, peace, ask God for what you need who gives generously. Verse 6, though, goes on, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave on the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. We've probably all seen the sea and its waves tossed by the wind, going to and fro. Have you been on a boat on the sea at some point? Maybe a boat that's not that big. If you're on the cruise ship, you you get that kind of rock, right? That's pretty gentle. And after a few days of getting off the cruise ship, you kind of forget what that was like. But if you're in a smaller boat on the sea where the waves are going back and forth, then you're grateful for the captain and the rudder. The rudderless boat on the sea, I think, is what James is kind of imagining here. You're like the wave. You're like going back and forth with no direction And no hope, just wherever the wind is going to push you, wherever the waves are going to push you. He goes on to talk about being double-minded. That's like thinking two things at once. Like, yes, I trust God, but... Like being unstable, also in verse 8. Going back and forth between God and self, or God and the world... Asking God for what we need in faith in the middle of a trial, of a struggle. That's one of our ways that we can approach these problems that we will face. Ask God for what you need. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about a thorn in his flesh. And he asked God for what he wanted, that it would be removed from him. God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. When we ask God in faith, we can hope for what we're asking for, but we're trusting in what he's going to give us at the same time. See, it doesn't mean that God's just going to go, oh, you asked that I take away your burden. James is saying, ask for wisdom. Ask for what you need to face the trial, not ask that the trial be taken away. There's a difference. And boast in the Lord. Verses 9 and 10 are about boasting and humiliation and exaltation for the rich and the humble. But neither is boasting in his own accomplishment. The lowly boasts of his exaltation, who's doing the work of exalting. And the rich in humiliation, being made humble, understanding life is temporary. So boast in what the Lord has done and keep your eyes on the prize. Recall verse 12. He will receive the crown of life. Look forward to forever. A few days ago, I went on a a ride on my bike. I do that uh, most Fridays, and I chose to do a, a hilly ride. So I was riding up a long, steep hill, and it was... There was a lot of motivation to turn around. 
and go the other way. Friday was warm. It wasn't quite as hot as it was yesterday. And there's smoke in the air, so that makes matters a little bit more complicated. But there were a couple of times when it was like, is this, is this really what I want to be doing today? What motivated me was knowing that I was going to reach the top. Like knowing I can accomplish this goal, knowing that I can reach the summit of this hill, knowing that I can get there, is going to keep me going. This is what James is talking about. Knowing that you'll receive the crown of life, keep going. Paul writes in Romans 8, I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our suffering is temporary. We live in the world, but we look ahead about what is to come. Or still here, we still have to deal with the trials and the suffering that we will face. And we want to, it's possible to be of, you know, so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good. Have you heard that expression? So focused on forever that we neglect life and here and now. We have work to do here. We have things we to, are to do and people to care about, et cetera, et cetera. So we don't get so focused on eternity that we forget about today. But we keep it in view. We keep it in mind knowing that this is temporary. This is fleeting. Forever is a long time. Keep our eyes on the prize. Struggle through. Carry on. Because where faith and life meet, we can grow in the real world. Amen.